0: So as I mentioned, we're continuing to work our way through Genesis, and tonight we're going to cover two entire chapters, chapters 10 and 11, which we just read. I'm going to make a few comments briefly about 10, and then we're actually going to spend most of our time talking about 11. So first, regarding chapter 10, it is a transition. It is a transition between the flood narrative and the Tower of Babel. In chapter 10, we see what is often called the table of nations. A table is a systematic arrangement of data, and the data contained in this table is the first few generations of offspring of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. As Noah's sons had their own children, these children began to repopulate the earth, developing into nations and settling all around the known world at that time. There are 70 nations named here in this section, and this is most likely an instance of biblical numerology. The number 70 representing completeness in this case. Often in the Bible, genealogies are not done the way that we might do a genealogy today in the West. In our thinking, we have to give a complete account of everybody who was born to everybody. We can't omit anyone. We can't skip any generations, anything like this. But in the Bible, what you often find is selective genealogies. This is not an instance of an error in the Scriptures. This is in accordance with the the customs of recording genealogies, common to the cultures in which these genealogies were written. And it serves a purpose. The way that... Uh, Somebody might say that they are a son of the great kings of old. It doesn't mean that they're literally the actual son. It means that they're descended from. In a similar way, sometimes you see things like that happening in the Scripture. Or sometimes you see an insignificant name omitted in one genealogy, but it's included in another genealogy which has another purpose. All of that to say, the fact that there are 70 nations mentioned here, is likely an instance of biblical numerology, where the author is intending for us to see that all the nations, all the nations, spring from the loins of Noah, so to speak. Why did he not include 71 names? Or 74 names? Or why did did he not stop a generation earlier and include 67 names? Or so on and so forth. The fact that the author has chosen to include 70 is likely intended to drive home the point that... All the nations spring from the loins of Noah. Incidentally, that fact then teaches that Noah's flood was universal because the biblical record is that there are no nations which do not trace their ancestry to Noah. In other words, all of the people of the earth but Noah and those in the boat were wiped out by the flood. If we read in these chapters that all of the nations come from the loins of Noah, the only conclusion when you put two and two together is that Noah's flood was indeed universal. Now, another thing to note among these nations, another thing to note is that among these nations, in the narrative, Shem and then Eber are singled out. Look at verse 2. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, etc., etc. Now look at verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, etc., etc. Now look at verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. You notice that there's a different introduction for Shem. There is a highlight, as it were, placed upon Shem in this passage. And Eber is clearly highlighted here because Eber is a couple of generations removed from Shem. But Shem is called the father of all the children of Eber. And so there's a special prominence given in this genealogy to Eber as well as to Shem. Notice also that In verse 19, Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned for the first time in Scripture as part of the territory of the Canaanites. Now, if we go back to the end of chapter 9, verse 25, we read, Cursed be Canaan. So, there should be some foreshadowing there. That the next time we hear Sodom and Gomorrah come up in the book of Genesis, we should remember that it's part of the territory of the Canaanites. We also read at the end of chapter 10, in verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So again, we should be putting these things together as we see the biblical narrative unfolded. Canaan has been cursed, and Shem has been blessed. And so as we see the narrative unfolding, there's nothing super explicit in chapter 10, but there is a little bit of foreshadowing Occurring, a little bit of hinting occurring, that these are things of significance uh, to the later narrative. So those are a couple of things that are going on in this genealogy, but primarily, primarily this genealogy is simply informing us of the way people did indeed begin to spread out throughout the world after the flood and organize themselves into distinguishable nations, cultures, and as we will see later in this passage, different languages chapter 10 is primarily just historical data about the early development of nations after the flood tabulated for us thus it is often called the table of nations and it's a transition between the flood narrative and the Tower of Babel narrative so with that transition in place Let's, in fact, look more closely at the Tower of Babel narrative. Allow me a story to introduce this section of the text as we turn now to chapter 11. This is a true story. It was brought to my attention by Kent Hughes' commentary on Genesis, where he quotes from an article published in the Arizona Republic back in 1986. And I'm going to read the excerpt that Kent Hughes quotes. It's a profile of a wealthy businessman named Gordon Hall. Here's an excerpt from the article. It is dusk, and Gordon Hall... Uh, Sorry, part of this quote is missing, it's a bad photocopy. It is dusk, something like he's overlooking the landscape from the top of his 55,000 square foot mansion in Paradise Valley a structure built by Pittsburgh industrialist Walker McCune and now owned and being renovated by Hall. Gordon Hall is 32 years old and a millionaire many times over. He stares at the range of lights stretching before him from horizon to horizon and breathes a deep, relaxed sigh. The lights of the city are like the campfires of a great army to Hall, Who sees himself as its benevolent general. They are like the flashlights of the world's fortune seekers. And Hall is their beacon to riches. They are for Hall like the stars of the firmament. And he is above them. He is worth more than 100 million, he says. Because it was his goal to be worth more than 100 million before the age of 33. There are other goals... By the time he is 38, he will be a billionaire. By the time his earthly body expires and he is convinced that he can live to be 120 years old, he will assume what he believes to be his just heavenly reward. Gordon Hall will be a god. Quote from Gordon Hall We have always existed as intelligences, as spirits, he says. We are down here to gain a body. As man is now, God once was. And as God is now, man can become. If you believe it, then your genetic makeup is to be a God. And I believe it. That is why I believe I can do anything. My genetic makeup is to be a God. My God in heaven creates worlds and universes. I believe I can do anything too. He looks to the horizon, and then he looks behind him, where his great dark house seems to drift like a ship in the night sky. End quote. Here is a man attempting to go up to God. Gordon Hall is attempting to go up to God. In fact, not only is he attempting to draw near to God through his own effort and ability, but actually to become a God. We find some similar characters in chapter 11 of Genesis. Perhaps they are not exactly the same, but there is a similarity in terms of the hubris and the arrogance and this impulse to try to go up to God, to attain to God by going up in by your own ability and your own effort. The first of such characters is Nimrod. We were introduced to him in chapter 10 verses 8 to 10. Let's just read those together again. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. (laughs) Nimrod... Leads the Babel project. We see that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. It's easy to overlook that because Nimrod is not mentioned in chapter 11. But this is, Babel is his kingdom. And so he is leading this project in chapter 11. So in verse 4 of chapter 11, when they say, Come, let us build Ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Nimrod. Nimrod is leading that charge. So, the first thing that we should note in this account is the obvious similarities that Nimrod bears to the Nephilim pre flood. We read that he he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Chapter 10 and verse 8. Where does that language come from? You read back in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Now also, what is a man of renown? It's a man of reputation, a man who has a great name. These Nephilim, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4, were obviously bent on making a name for themselves. And what do we read about Nimrod, in chapter 11 and verse 4, he leads this charge to come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. So Nimrod is actually doing the exact same thing after the flood as the Nephilim were doing before the flood. So Nimrod is not a good guy. We read, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. This might, this might make you think, if, if the name didn't sound so silly, maybe we should name our kids Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, a good masculine name. But a mighty hunter before the Lord doesn't seem to have a good connotation to it. It Actually, when we, when we consider Nimrod's character in the unfolding of this narrative, and also his associations with Babylon, which is where Babel is located, and with Assyria, and the unfolding of the biblical narrative, where Assyria and Babylon, even in, even in figurative prophecy, are always associated with evil in the Scriptures. The, ex- the only exception that I'm aware of being the repentance of Nineveh, which was in Assyria when Jonah went and preached. But almost always in the Scripture, these are bad guys and bad places. Nimrod, being a mighty hunter before the Lord. Apparently, this word "before the Lord" before could also be translated as "against" or a mighty hunter against the Lord, or when, as as in when God says in the Ten Commandments, "You shall have no other gods before me." That there is a this idea of having a God, be, having another God but Yahweh in God's presence or before God's presence. And so Nimrod seems to be this boastful person who Somehow, the the phrase is a little bit cryptic But somehow he seems to have been endowed with skill in hunting And, like the Nephilim, likely of large size It seems that he was probably, like the Nephilim, a giant And so he's this mighty man He's probably, like we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about the Nephilim Probably between 8 and 10 feet tall A large guy, a strong and mighty hunter, a king who has kingdoms, and he lets it go to his head. And so he's a mighty hunter against the Lord, or in some kind of exalted way, competing with the Lord, or something like that. This is the picture that we get of Nimrod in this section. So there's Nimrod, who is a similar character to Gordon Hall. Gordon Hall is not content to be subject to God. Gordon Hall wants to come up to God's level. It seems that Nimrod is a similar kind of character who is not content to be under Yahweh, but wants to ascend to somehow compete with or be equal to Yahweh. He doesn't want to be subject. He wants to be equal. And so there's this idea of, again, going up and attaining to divinity or or attaining to some sort of connection with the divine which we'll get to in a moment by one's own effort this characterizes both Gordon Hall and Nimrod the second instance of persons of similar character to Gordon Hall are the men who aspire to build Babel chapter 11 and verse 4 is not true only of Nimrod Because it says, Then they said. Not then Nimrod said. We should read into the they, Nimrod was among them. Nimrod was their leader, based on the textual cue that we have in chapter 10. But we shouldn't think that it was only Nimrod who said that. All the men of Babel want to build for themselves a tower. And make a name for themselves. Babel can mean confusion, as in the confusion of languages that happens at the end of this passage. But some have argued that the earliest meaning of this term was actually probably more like The gate of God. Which I think fits better with the context. What they were building was not just a tall tower. They weren't just thinking, well, maybe we can actually literally go up to God. And just build a huge, like a skyscraper or something like this. But what they were building was a ziggurat. Which was a temple-like structure. Common to ancient Assyria and ancient Babylon. Where there were steps up. And at the top, religious rites and religious sacrifices would occur. It was the meeting place, the perceived meeting place, between the gods and man. And so what they're doing in this section is they're trying to build a ziggurat whereby they can ascend to have communion with the gods. They want to go up and have fellowship with the gods on top of this tower. This is what's going on here. This is pagan worship. High structures where man will go up to meet with the gods. Now, back to Nimrod. This is going to be an aside here. But regardless of how Nimrod became a giant, it seems textually that he was a giant like the Nephilim because the, the exact same words and phrases are predicated of him. So I think it's probably fair to say whatever the Nephilim were in Genesis six, Nimrod also is in Genesis ten and eleven. So we talked about the sons of God and the daughters of men being either the line of Seth co mingling with the line of Canaan, or pardon me, the line of Cain, or the sons of God being angelic beings, as as later in Scripture, angelic beings are often referred to as the sons of God. Having sexual intercourse with mankind and producing some kind of hybrid being called the Nephilim. Now, in pagan worship, the gods would come down to the top of Ziggurats to meet, supposedly, with the men who would who would ascend up there, right, or human beings who would ascend up there. So, I'm just helping you think along both of those trajectories. At the very least, what these guys were doing was building a pagan temple. At the very worst, what they were trying to do was interact with demons on top of this ziggurat. Fallen angelic beings who would meet with human beings on top of these ziggurats. That's all I'm going to say about that. In any case, whatever the situation and some some of this... That whole discussion may add some texture and some layers and some interesting incidental details to the biblical narrative, but wherever you land on that particular issue, it actually isn't going to drastically skew the rest of the unfolding... Biblical narrative. So that's all I'm gonna say about that. In any case, in any case, these guys in Genesis chapter eleven who try to build this Tower of Babel, this ziggurat, to have false worship, to go up to have communion with the gods, it's utterly futile. It's utterly futile. At at best at best, all they're doing is meeting with beings that are not truly God's. At best. Because what we see is that the only God, the only true God, in this passage, says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. Right? Come, let us go down Verse 5 of chapter 11. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. What this is showing us is that their tower was not close to getting them to God. They weren't like almost there. God, as it were, had to come down to see it. He's squinting his eyes as it were from up in heaven. Like what is this thing that they're doing? Let us go down to see this thing. This is what the one true God is saying of this attempt to go up to meet with the gods. This is anthropomorphic language, which is attributing human qualities to someone that is not a human. That will suffice. God did not actually have to come down in order to be able to know what they're doing. The same as God does not have nostrils with which to smell incense or to um, ears with which to hear the praise of His peoples. Or God doesn't literally have a right arm with which He delivers His people throughout the Old Testament. These are expressions used to describe the actions of God and the disposition of God toward various things in a way that's intelligible to us. And so what this passage is telling us is like God was up there squinting as it were looking down, being like, what are they doing down there? Come, let us go down and see what they're doing down there. This is what's going on. It, they're not even close, not even close to getting up to that which is truly divine, or He, we should say, who is truly divine divine, they're not even close and then the same thing with God seeing observing, learning of their schemes, this is anthropomorphic language as well or anthropopathic language I'm not sure exactly which is technically right, but in either case it's describing human qualities to God, which God properly speaking does not have but it's a way of speaking that's intelligible to us God says, God goes down and sees the city and the tower. And then in verse 6, he says, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. This seems like God goes down and sees something, learns something, and then reacts to what He has learned. Again, this is anthropomorphic, or I'm not sure, maybe anthropopathic. I'm not sure exactly where the line is between those things, but this is language predicating that of God, which is actually not truly and properly speaking true of God. God doesn't learn anything. God knows everything. And He knows everything in an instant, without just accumulating information. God doesn't do research, as it were. But this is, this is helping us understand something of God's disposition towards this building project. God looks, God has to come all the way down here to see. And then when he sees Nimrod, the mighty man, right? Like a Nephilim, this big man, this king building this tower, what does God do? He purposes to thwart their plan. So this reminds me so much of Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2 we read this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is what's going on here in this section. The best, the strongest of men are here doing the best that they can do. The cooperative efforts of the best of men are trying to build this tower by which they will worship false gods and make a name for themselves. They're attempting to go up by their own efforts, by their own abilities to that which is divine. And what does God do? He goes down, he's like, no, this is not going to happen. And he, he confuses their languages and utterly thwarts their plan. So imagine, imagine that day... When all the guys show up to the job site and start talking to one another. What did you say? And they, back and forth they go. And then I guess eventually they just go, they just start walking away from the job site. Well, I don't know, what am I going to do now? Right? God thwarts their plans so easily. It's just stated matter of factly. It's not a big battle between Nimrod and God. It's not a big battle between these men and God. God's like, well, look, here, they're trying to do all these evil schemes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut it down before it goes too far. And that's all that happens in this section. It is utterly futile, utterly futile to try to go up to God by your own effort, by your own ambition. This passage teaches us that these men were trying to connect with the divine by their own effort, by their own ambition, by building a tower so that they could go up. And again, at best, even if they were meeting with demons up on top of those things, they weren't meeting with that which is divine. What is he who is truly divine has to squint to see them. Then he comes down and thwarts their plans. It's utterly futile to try to go up to God. Now back to Gordon Hall. I looked up this Arizona businessman out of curiosity since the article was printed in 1986. The article I read to you was printed in the same year I was born. So I looked him up. Well, it turns out he's now serving time in prison for tax fraud. So this this man who was going to go up to attain to the divine by his own effort, by his own ability, is now... In the little jail cell. Doing time. For tax fraud. It is utterly futile. To try to go up to God. By your own ambition. Now. Some of us may have a head full of gospel truth. But hearts that are still plagued by legalism. A works righteousness kind of legalism. Some of us. Though we may. As I mentioned earlier in the service. Have an orthodox doctrine. Doctrine. Of justification by faith. Sometimes our hearts may feel like or we may stray functionally into acting like our relationship with God is predicated on our works, righteousness, on our own law-keeping. Sometimes we feel like it's all up to us to go up to God. Sometimes we feel like it's our own ambition, our own ability our own effort that is going to take us up to God. Sometimes that kind of legalism creeps into our heart. We think that we need to make a tower in our lives, so to speak, whereby we can go up to meet with God. And this kind of legalism ends always either in pride or despair. You end up thinking that you've attained something when really you've attained nothing. Or it's discouraging because you think that you should be building a tower, but you find that you're not able to build a tower. You're never really able to get up there to communion with God by your own efforts, by your own abilities, by your own actions. You're never able to go up to God, as it were. it is a a futile and it is an anti-gospel way of thinking that we need to go up to God. We need to renounce that way of thinking. Christianity is not a tower-building religion. Ever since the fall of man, it has been utterly futile to try to go up to God. As Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, which we read earlier in the service, Even all of our righteousness. All of our righteousness. Not all of our transgressions are as filthy rags. Not all of our iniquities are as filthy rags. Not all of our sins are as filthy rags. But all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Which means God has to squint to try to see the tower you're building. You're not even close. You are not even close. Ever since the fall of man, it has been utterly futile to try to go up to God. Therefore, if there is to be any hope for sinners, God must come down to man. We see that happening throughout the rest of the biblical narrative. We'll see it over and over again, working our way through the Old Testament. But we see it most clearly, of course, in the Incarnation. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 47 says that the second man is from heaven. The first man was from the dust of the earth. The second man, that's Christ Jesus in the context, is from heaven. There is a man who came down. There is a God who came down as man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was born in Bethlehem God come down to take on our nature to bear in himself all of the responsibilities that God placed upon the original man in the garden, Adam. Christ Jesus came to keep God's law for us who have failed to keep God's law. And then this God who became man went to the cross and died in our place bearing our sins upon Himself on the cross such that when we shift our focus pardon me, shift our confidence away from ourselves toward Christ Jesus and place all of our confidence for salvation from sin away from our tower building activities away from any attempt to go up to God and recognize that our only hope is that God has come down we will be saved We are pardoned for our our sin. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, so we one day will be raised from the dead. We need to repent not only of running from God, but we also need to repent of trying to go up To God. By our own righteousness. What we need to do is recognize that yes, we are down here and God is up there. But the only right solution. The only right solution. The only solution that will work. The only solution that is prescribed. Is not that I would go up to God. But that God would come down to me. And indeed he has in Christ Jesus. (coughs) So when Jesus appears in the biblical narrative in the manger in Bethlehem and in the meantime between Babel and there those who worship the true God, Yahweh always do so because God has come down to them as it were. Initiating, revealing, condescending. The Old Testament is not a narrative of men going up to God. The Old Testament is a narrative of God coming down to man. And this sets us up for the narrative of Abram's life, later called Abraham. In this passage, Genesis chapter 11, we see a contrast between man's futile attempt to go up, looking for God, and God's initiation of a relationship with a man By coming down, so to speak. And that's why I read the first part of Genesis 12.1 when I finished that section. Now the Lord said to Abram. What we see is that this chapter begins, Genesis 11, with man trying to go up to God. Genesis 12 begins with God coming down to man. There is no more focus... After chapter 10, no more focus in the biblical narrative placed upon the descendants of Ham and the descendants of Japheth. From here on out, it follows the lineage of Shem. Blessed be the God of Shem. Eber is where we get the word Hebrew from. Because Eber is this prominent ancestor of Abram. What Genesis 11 does is it it shows man going up to God. And then it shows God coming down to Shem's line. To Eber and the Hebrews, Beginning with Abram. At the beginning of chapter 12 and verse 1. What you see in this chapter are two different ways to attempt to bridge this gap between God, God, and man caused by our sin. So what does all of this mean for us? It reinforces the point that all true religion since the fall of mankind into sin is not based on man going up and attaining to God. Rather, it is based on God coming down into relationship with man. As it was with Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abram, so it is with us today. As it was before the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem so long ago, so it is after the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem so long ago. True religion is comprised of our response to God's condescension to us. True religion is never God's response to our ascension to Him. May we never lose sight of the simplicity of the gospel. That God has come down in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners. We mustn't think that Christianity is a bunch of good people trying to be better. Tower building. That we may go up to God. On the contrary, Christianity is a bunch of bad people down here to whom God has condescended in order to save. We are not those who are better than others, who have ascended up some stairs that others have yet to ascend, and we have gone up to God. Rather, we are simply those who have been made aware of our lowliness and the futility of tower building, and who have cried for help from heaven to come down to us. If you're not yet a Christian, you must not think that embracing Christianity is embracing a call to self-improvement, to tower building. That's not Christianity. Embracing Christianity is embracing the fact that we could never build a tower high enough to get to God. And embracing the correlated fact that God Himself must come down to rescue us if we are ever to escape the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And God has done just that in Jesus Christ. God came down... To rescue us. Rest your soul in that fact. That salvation happens not by us going up to God. But by God coming down to us. If any legalism has been creeping into your mindset. Any attempts at tower building. Have been part of your Christian walk lately any confidence in your ability or hopefulness or optimism of your ability to build a tower to go up to God, renounce that. God would have to squint. God would have to come down to even see what you're doing. You're not even close. But praise be to God that He is prepared to come all the way down for you, brother, and you, sisters, Praise be to God. Renounce that tower building. Stay here. Down here. Renounce your own tower building. Renounce your own works righteousness. And simply look to God to come all the way down to you in Christ Jesus. Rest in the fact that day by day, God is ready and willing to come down and condescend to you to be in fellowship with you because He has bridged the distance in Christ Jesus, not because you have bridged the distance. So get rid of that legalism. Remember that true religion is God coming down to us. This is the simplicity of the Gospel. Amidst all the complexity of biblical theology, complex questions of epistemology, hermeneutics, complex questions of worldview political systems etc. etc. all these things we have to think through as Christians complicated things let's not lose the forest for the trees we are sinners laid low in the dust because of our sin and God has come down to us with salvation in his hand let us worship and praise and repent of all misguided attempts to go up to him